Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Tech Time Podcast. This episode is called Tactical Brilliance. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and I'm joined by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summers F1. How's it going there, Summers? It's going pretty good, thanks, Matt. I hope it's the same for yourself. Yeah, well, you know, I'm having one of these parenting dilemmas, which I'm sure you are not at all acquainted with. But in essence, we took our child to a rock and roll show last night and kept her up very, very late at night before sending her off to school today. So I'm sort of struggling with, on the one hand, I think we were the cool parents, but on the other hand, possibly we were the bad parents. Well, there's always room to be both good and bad, I suppose, isn't there? Yes, it seems like things are relaxing now that the child is getting older. Anyway, I need to remind everyone we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. And if you want to join the live stream, find Missed Apex Podcast on YouTube and subscribe. Click the little bell icon when you subscribe and you'll get a notification when we go live. Well, what say we go talk about some un? finished business. Specifically, Singapore. Singapore, where things happen. Things that we've never seen before. Lots of things. Anyway, of course, I'm talking about the amazing turnaround that Mercedes affected between the end of Free Practice 3 and qualifying. And why are we going to talk about this more when, of course, we did talk about it on the show last week? Well, one, we have the 
unbelievable luck to have your brilliant perspective on it. But more importantly, this is, and I went back and looked, this is something we've never seen in the last two years. It was basically a 1.12 second swing for Mercedes. And the only other time this year that even Mercedes, and by Mercedes, I mean Hamilton versus Vettel here, the only other time he even came from behind was in Austria. And there it was a swing of about 0.344 seconds. And that was the one where uh, Valtteri wound up with pole. And lest you just say, oh, well, Vettel had an off day because after all, Verstappen beat him. No, not really. In terms of percentages, he improved by 1.45% between free practice three and qualifying. And his average improvement on the year has been about 1.24%. So it's not like he wasn't trying. Um, uh, however, in Austria, you might say differently is he only improved by 0.95%. But, and even last year, the biggest turnaround I saw for Hamilton versus Mercedes was about six tenths of a second. And that's for sessions that had the same conditions. So not Bahrain, where we go from daylight into nighttime, not Australia, where we had the wet dry. I'm just talking about comparing lake to lake sessions here. So what was behind this? What was Mercedes' big breakthrough? Well, I think it's been a long time coming, Matt. We, we've heard about Mercedes' problems year on year since they really come back into the sport in terms of being able to manage the tyre temperatures on the rear of the car. And they, they've kind of got it under control throughout the hybrid era, but it started to come back to bite them now that they have close proximity to somebody that's challenging them. So Mercedes have gone off and done some extremely um, hard work in the background to try to engineer this problem away. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the sort of problem they have is never going to fully go away because it's intrinsically built into their car and their concept but i think they've made some massive strides in terms of the um the way they're operating the car and some of the the equipment that they're now using on the car um it's a combination of those factors for me that have given them that kind of advantage but in reality we also have to load lewis hamilton for the the quality of that lap in qualifying because i think he really just did knock it out the park and and that's one of the big factors here you know the 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 team can go so far in engineering and get out a problem but then you have to get that uh, result uh turned around by the driver himself as well yeah and he did say i mean i think this is probably one of his all-time laps qualifying wise there wasn't much he felt there was left for him to ring out of that lap and I don't know. Uh, but it's really interesting to me because Singapore has been very much a bogey track for them. And we saw not just in qualifying, which hats off, hats off, you can say, okay, so they got it turned around for qualifying. But even in the race, I mean, Mercedes, as, as long as they've been back in the sport, have had this tendency to just eat their rear tires, especially when it's hot and humid as it was in Singapore. And this just, it did not happen. So specifically, what technical breakthrough happened? What do you think was the final piece of the puzzle? Because even in Spa, we were seeing them unable to keep up with Ferrari and it was rear limited. So so what has changed and what new developments did they bring? Okay. So I think we have to firstly have a think back to qualifying and understand the outlap that Hamilton and Bottas used um, going towards their their quickest lap in in Q3. And even Sebastian Vettel referenced this on the radio. The Mercedes were incredibly slow on that outlap to the point where you almost thought they were ready to stop on the circuit. And obviously that helps to control and develop the tyres in a way in which it then offers performance to the car throughout the rest of that lap. So I think... 
pr- primarily what Mercedes have had problems with in terms of qualifying in Singapore in the past is, is that the softest compound of tyre for qualifying tends to die out towards the end of the lap. And by going much slower in that outlap, we've seen that the, they've been able to eke out the, the, the sort of advantage that we've seen um, throughout that qualifying lap. But as you say, they did have a number of uh, new items to the car as well, which have clearly had an impact. And we have to go back to Spa for the introduction of the first one of those. They've had a new wheel rim design. Um, And it's something that we've seen elsewhere on the grid. Uh, They use sort of these cooling fins on the interior of the wheel rim. Now, they have to work with the wheel manufacturer to, to come up with these designs. We've seen Red Bull use a similar thing already we've seen force india try it as well they have very different designs to the mercedes ones um i would suggest that mercedes version is is particularly aggressive they're quite high sort of nodules on the uh, wheel rim themselves to try to manage the thermal reaction that's going on inside the tire and that's another thing that we have to remember we always talk about uh, the, the thermal properties of these tires but there's two sort of temperatures that are, are sort of fighting one another at any one time you have the core temperature and then you have the uh, platform tread temperature as well and you know if you get the both of those out of outside the window of one another then you don't get the kind of performance so helping those two to to get much closer to one another could have been a one of the big factors here so so on top of that obviously we've had that wheel rim since uh spa and we've also got uh gone through the italian grand prix with that design and then they've rocked up to singapore and they've had further developments on top of that to try to maximize what they've already gained in the previous two races a track that has been as you mentioned earlier a bogey track for them so they introduced a new rear brake drum design uh which basically changes again the properties between the temperature that's created under braking the core temperature in the wheel itself the wheel rim and how that transmits to the tire into the core of the tire and then out to the tread platform so i think a lot of what they've done is to manage the temperature of the rear tires to help them to get the best overlap and over the course of a stint which as we know in singapore the opening stint was extremely slow as well you know there was huge amounts of management going on in that opening stint and that clearly helped mercedes on in their course it did now if i can ask um that drum that you're referencing i i saw your article about that on um on motorsport how do how is that working does that drum sit inside the wheel and the tire sits around it so in in essence they've created an extra pocket of air okay so so basically usually the design of the wheel uh brake sorry the brake drum right um is a flat design so you have a, a, a mating surface between the brake drum and the wheel rim, and they're normally very, very tight to one another. You have a passage of air that goes between them because obviously you have to have a gapping. You know, it's something that rotates. Um, but the new design is a concave design, so there's more air passing between the brake drum and the wheel face or the inner wheel face. And so, yeah, you've got a different thermal uh, relationship between those two surfaces. Okay, and that's that's helping to balance the temperature between the tread and the core or the bulk. Yes, that's the way. That's the way I would un- interpret what they were trying to do. They tried to change that relationship: the bulk temperature or the core temperature versus the tread platform temperature. Those two have to be fairly 
fairly matched to one another in order to get the kind of performance you want from them. Right. And and would that relate at all to Pirelli shaving the tread a little bit at some of these newly resurfaced tracks because all they expected all the teams to have an issue that way? Yeah, and this was all to do with resurfacing, wasn't it? So yeah. um, we, we, obviously in those circumstances, you're having a situation whereby the actual temperature of the, the tread platform is getting hotter than it should do. So what you want to do is shave some of that tread off so that you release some of the temperature that would ordinarily be created. It's They've just re-engineered the, the tyre plat- platform effectively for those races. But yeah, that, that's what Pirelli were up to there. Right. But I guess my point being that although this is a specific issue for Mercedes overall, it's an issue that uh, all manufacturers need to be concerned with and that we've seen Pirelli address across the entire field due to some uh, track-specific issues with the resurfacing. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about tyre performance uh, quite regularly on the show. And, you know, it's one of those areas that it is a bit of a black art in terms of that, you know, that, that it's not tangible. You can't see it. You know, we can't see it as, as a consumer on, on the end of the broadcast. But the engineers have that information available, available to them. So they know what's going on. They know how to try to get better performance. And they can obviously feed that information to the driver and we often hear them talking about temperatures and so what so on and so forth on on the radio um but yeah tire performance is, is a massive factor and it's something that you tend to see towards the end of a season that where teams are starting to really understand how to get the best from from the tire you see their performance start to yo-yo between the the different manufacturers Okay, and so uh, just to, to finish off with this, and, and you may have already partially addressed this, but we had uh, Gianluca Calvarese on Twitter ask a similar question. And, and this is my question too. Is this a definitive solution for Mercedes? Have they finally done it? Or was it also, I'm talking about in the race now, do you think it was also just Ferrari's uh, lack of pace or strategic box that they found themselves in by not starting on their favorite tire that made Mercedes look better? In other words, in the race, is this a solved problem for them or will it continue to plague them and will they have to continue to work at it? I think you have to think that this is track specificity, if I can get it out. Um, So so Singapore, as you've mentioned, is a bogey track for for Mercedes. So they've had to work extremely hard to try to understand the problems that they have at that particular track. You know, their car is designed to work on a, a, a range of different circuits, but the street tracks are where they have always suffered. And it's because of the um, low range traction events that you have. Um, You know, so... I think it's a case of Mercedes have tried to work on that area of the car in order to improve the performance at those specific circuits. Um, I do think we'll still see a yo-yoing of performance between Mercedes and Ferrari because, you know, they are so very close to one another. Um, And you do tend to see, or I tend to have seen so far this season, that one car tends to operate better at one circuit and another at another. And it's now starting to come down to the difference between the drivers as well, which is a factor that obviously the sport's been trying to engineer into to the sport for a long time. So, yeah, I do see the, the end of this season being more down to the small performance margins that each manufacturer can find to, to gain um, at that specific circuit whether it be setup or tires or, or a combination of factors, including the driver performance. All right, then 
what say we go, since I've already brought up our listeners, what say we go and take a quick walk through a few listener questions? And in this case, the vast majority are going to be coming from Twitter, but our very first one comes from Lee Calvin, who sent an email in saying, are you expecting teams to run 19 engines? Or the concepts and free practice from now on? Or will that incur a penalty? And along with that, he wants to know why everyone's stealing McLaren's ideas while the team itself seems to be doing so poorly. Okay, so first question about 19 engines. Um, I wouldn't be expecting them to run any uh, 2019 engines just purely because of the architectural differences between one concept to another. You could, in theory, run a sort of 0.5 specification whereby you intentionally run uh, some of the ideas that you would see in 2019 but I don't particularly think we'll see any if somebody was bold enough to try something um, then no they wouldn't incur a penalty because free practice you can kind of run what you're wrong in in those respects so yeah I wouldn't expect to see a penalty there and going to McLaren um, fundamentally the MCL33 is a decent car in terms of the ideas that are put forward aerodynamically. But unfortunately, they've got some problems with the car itself. Um, you know, that they went very late into the development of that car because of the change from the Honda power unit to the Renault power unit. And I think they've had some issues in terms of understanding how to get the best from the cooling package, how to get the best from the Renault power unit. And unfortunately, as we've heard recently, they've also made a uh, gear ratio selection problem, uh, which has also hindered them uh, throughout this season. All right. We also have now from uh, Twitter, Martin Elliott wanting to know, What's the full control system of Formula One brake by wire? Can can it can we take the um, he wants us to take a typical road car system as a start, and then he's also curious about the changes in brake by wire for Formula E. So that seems like a small lecture from you is coming up. Okay, I'm going to try and keep this as succinct as possible. Um, what I think probably the best thing to do is try to imagine an overhead of a Formula One car, and then have a couple of pieces of tracing paper. On the first piece of tracing paper, I would have the conventional braking system, you know, the hydraulic elements that you would ordinarily expect to see front to rear. And on the secondary piece of um, paper, I would expect you to have the Kerr system or the ERS system. Now, those two systems through the brake by wire are interlinked with one another. Um, And globally, you would expect the ECU to control what the driver is anticipating as getting a result from so if he applies the brakes he is expecting to get the kind of distribution he would get from a hydraulic system and so if he's got his brake bias set 60 40 then you would expect the front brakes to be applied 60 percent the rear brakes applied 40 percent however because we're working in formula one and we have a mg uk applied to the crankshaft that is slowing down the car from the rear now what the ECU or ERS system will do there is it will work out firstly the the brake bias that the driver is running after the ECU and ERS system has proportioned the brake bias it will then work with the ERS brake pressure reducing valve in order to reduce the amount of physical pressure that's being presented by the rear brakes in order that they the rear brakes 
obviously work in line with the pressure that the ERS is providing. So you, effectively what you're trying to do is get the same response from the braking system that the driver is requesting from a hydraulic system but of course you have an electronic system that, that's tagged in over the top of it to try to control everything but yeah it's a, it's a very automated system in that respect okay so let's say a driver applies a force of 10 to the pedal and they are harvesting they're going to harvest three with the curves and that means that then the brake um the physical uh, rear calipers will only apply a pressure of seven. If I can just sort of, is that a correct understanding of it? I mean, I'm sure it's more complicated and nuanced than that, but if I was trying to simplify it to understand just how the basic components work together, essentially the ECU does that math every time the driver hits the brakes. That's it, yeah, because there's a, there's reference points that you're working from. So you, you're interlinked also to the energy recovery systems, um, the amount of energy that's being recovered at that point so obviously the driver can make adjustments to that if he doesn't want to recover as much in one corner because he feels it will upset the balance of the car he can request that the the ersk does actually reduce the amount of recovery that's undertaken and then that obviously puts more pressure on the the rear brakes to supply the difference between so yeah that that's kind of where you where you are at with that matt yeah Okay, so I'm going to ask this now. In terms of the harvesting, um, is this, you know, you say it happens mostly automatically. Um, will it happen with every braking event? Um, and is there a map that determines how much gets recovered at each corner? Like, and, and is that sort of related to the engine modes in general that we hear about? And regardless, does the driver, can, can the driver manually say, I want no recovery on this, or I want full recovery on this, or, or is it I have to pick a different engine mode to get the recovery that I want? So there's a global engine mode that the driver would use. We hear Mercedes use them in, in terms of strap modes. Yes. Um, and obviously that will have an impact on the type of recovery that's being uh, undertaken by the MG UK. Um, it will either be fierce in terms of rear braking or or obviously not not a lot of uh energy recovery going on at all and that it, that will dictate the global energy map as well so you know in reality the teams always want to try to recover as much energy as possible because then they can feed it back into the system and it improves performance overall but there are certain circumstances whereby the driver needs to feel comfortable and balanced with the car so he can make overrides and yeah, there are se separate switches for those scenarios. Um, we don't tend to probably see the drivers using them all too much. But, you know, they've got the, the to toggles on the thumbsticks um, of the steering wheel. They've got all sorts of rotary switches that they can make changes to. So, yeah, it, it really is driver dependent. And obviously then that feeds back into the overall performance of the car as well. Okay, great. And now um, let's talk a little bit about Formula E as well, because they are switching to brake by wire for the very first for season five in the Gen 2 car. So how is that going to change what's happening there? Okay, so the Gen 1 car, I believe, was supposed to go to um, brake by wire in season three, and they delayed that for the Gen 2 car, and they brought it on board. Now, the, the, the good thing about the Gen 1 car in terms of that braking system was that you sort of had an independence um, in terms of using the recovery. So you often saw drivers making lots of adjustments throughout a lap because they were affected by the amount of energy that could be recovered 
at any one time to the battery. So it was a constant moving, maneuvering of the car in in that respect. It affected the, the amount of energy that was being recovered affected the balance of the car and as you got towards a sort of a battery that was empty then you can't do as much recovery now obviously in terms of the gen 2 car we only have one car per race rather than the driver switch so i think we're going to see less and less of that affecting the driver and primarily what we're going to see is more of what we see in formula one it is an intrinsic map in terms of the driver will have less responsibility over the energy recovery side of the braking elements so it, it kind of dumbs it down for the driver a little bit however i think because of the way that the gen 2 car is going to be set up for next year i think it's kind of a welcome thing for, for most of the drivers yeah, well, this is the thing that we'd seen very much is that rookies in Formula E would really struggle. And for the drivers that had been there the whole time, I think they are the ones who are most, um, well, I wouldn't say they're opposed to this change, but they do feel like an aspect of driver skill is being removed by the automation of this process. But it seems like they're going to give them some other toys to play with as well. So hopefully it all comes out in the wash. Uh, Samuel Adams on Twitter um, also noted maker of beer samuel adams on twitter wants to know how about fuel how it's added and removed from the car and especially how the teams know the precise amount of fuel and whether the driver can check the fuel levels while racing right okay so there's a few questions in there uh-huh. um, in terms of um applying fuel to the car you may have seen inside the garage a, a quite a large um fuel bowser uh, and basically that is how they pop fuel into the car uh, and adjust the amount of fuel inside the car um, I might put a picture of that up on my Twitter feed actually just so that people have got an idea of, of what we're talking about in this podcast because um, it's one of those visceral things that I can't really explain Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that is key to, to, to understanding here is that fuel is not measured in volume it's, measure, it's measured in weight um, you know we have 105 kilograms of fuel for a race this season going up to 110 kilograms for 2019 um and that's due to obviously heat you know you can change the property on the density of fuel based on the, the temperature um so that's why we don't measure it in liters for argument's sake um which also brings in some interesting things in terms of chemistry because technically you could have a lighter amount of fuel load but be, be- still be more fuel efficient than your um competition um which you know that that's interesting in terms of you know imagine that mercedes can run 100 kilograms worth of fuel but they're still more fuel efficient than ferrari yeah you know, that, that's the kind of thing we're talking about yeah well do you remember it was it two seasons ago maybe the beginning of these regulations for a while they would run a graphic on the screen that like how much fuel was being used or how efficient the cars were and, and i think it went away because the teams didn't want to reveal to everyone like where they're where they were filling the cars to and this was with the original i uh, was at 100 105 kilos it was 100 kilograms to start with uh, when we first started the hybrid era um obviously the the increase came because of the increased weight of the cars etc that's gone on in recent years but yeah the teams kind of just work out for their consumption from from the targets you know they have a fuel flow limit they have to work within so they always know how much fuel that they've got on board it's you know it's not a i don't need to look at a fuel gauge to to work it out because there's a constant um fuel flow um mathematics that's going on so that's how they they work on that side of things 
Okay. Um, Negus44 would like to know, with the change in arrow philosophy for next season, which would be more beneficial, lower or higher rake? And he's probably not the only one by a long shot. This low rake, high rake argument has raged across the season, at least, you know, in my head. So wh- what do you think? What's, what's your opinion of how, how the new arrow regulations are going to come into play? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, to be honest, at this stage. Um, because I haven't seen any CFD work one way or another. And obviously the principal factor that we're going to have for next year is the front wing change. Uh, Obviously there's other changes going on, but the the change to the front wing, the change to the outwash, and then the way in which that the designers are able to move that airflow and then enclose that airflow to improve the rear downforce is going to be massively critical. And it's going to have a monumental difference to what we're seeing already this year. So, you know, it might actually be beneficial to go somewhere in the middle, let's say. Um, But, yeah, each team runs their own philosophy. What we've got to remember is that we've got Mercedes running a low-rake car and we've got Ferrari and Red Bull running high-rake cars. And, they're, you know, the top two teams are within tenths of one another. So I don't think it's too critical in, in, in the overall grand scheme of things. It's how they get all of that to tie in with one another conceptually. You know, if you can get your car to work as a low-rake car with extremely turbulent air, then that's the way to go. You know, and I don't see Mercedes moving away from a low rake philosophy just because everybody else has moved towards a high rake. They've been doing it for such a long time now that t- making that kind of change would be very drastic. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, when I think about it, and this may be the wrong way to think about it, but with the higher rake car for a given wheelbase, you have more surface area usable for your diffuser because the rear of the car is farther away. So your diffuser can be shorter but it's essentially taller because it's further away from the bottom. But the challenge there uh, is to seal the diffuser uh, from uh, squirt from your rear tires. Whereas with the long wheelbase, you ha- with a long with a low rake, you need to make the diffuser longer, so you have to seal it for a longer distance. But you have less actual um, you have less actual height over the pavement to try and seal. And and that's going to affect the entire design of the car. So it's just which you think you could do more easily, I guess, and probably related to the wheelbase regulations as well, I would imagine. Yeah, and it's how you extrapolate that difference between the long car, short car, low rake, high rake. You know, the, these are all decisions that the, the teams will, will have already made for next year's cars, irrespective of this conversation. You know, they've had the regulations in place in their hands for a long time now. And although there's still some movement because, you know, the rules still aren't out there, unfortunately, I still haven't seen a a full set of regulations for 2019. Um, A lot, most of the teams actually, you know, will be a long way along with their development of, of next year's cars already. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, well, let's move on to Kedar, who would like to know your views on the new wings and particularly the associated wind tunnel correlations. Um, and he mentions F1 Elvis going into detail why the current regulations make everyone go to the wind tunnel owned by Toyota in Cologne. Now, I don't know if you've seen that video, but I'd be curious if you had any thoughts on it. Okay, I did watch it based on the fact that I've seen this question already. So I went out and I watched that, that video. And Mark really made some interesting points that are, you know, fundamentally already accepted in the field. You know, um, his video kind of pointed out errors within McLaren's operation in terms of their wind tunnel and the way that they've gone to Cologne and they've run the the Cologne wind tunnel pretty much permanently uh, because they have issues with their own tunnel. Now, Mark was suggesting that the reason that they had problems with their tunnel is that when they updated it for the 2009 regulations, which suddenly had outwash development, right? Um, they, their tunnel wasn't sufficient for, for using outwash. Um, it was too narrow, effectively. Right. So what they, what they were finding was that the airflow that they were outwashing around the front wheels was actually colliding with the walls of the, the, the wind tunnel. And then, obviously, that makes turbulence, and you don't get the correct result for, for, for what you're looking for. So they obviously then went off to Cologne to try to, to resolve that problem. Um, they, they can't resolve the problem with their own wind, wind tunnel in, in some respects, so they've stayed in Cologne. We've also seen other teams use Cologne down the years as cor- as a correlation tool. So they'll go out there with their um, model and they will work on the design of the car and they will try to understand if the, their wind tunnel correlates with the Cologne wind tunnel to get the same results. And then they know that their wind tunnel uh, is providing the correct, the correct answers. Um, there's no right or wrong answer in some respects to to whether that's the right way to do it because nobody knows whether cologne is 100 percent accurate any any one time you know we, we're talking in scales here so 60 percent is the maximum scale model that a formula one team can use and if that's quite an important factor when you consider that prior to 2009 you could use a 100 percent scale model you know, we could fit a full-size car in, in their wind tunnel. Uh, and a lot of teams did do that, along with the massive amount of testing that was going on at the time as well. And that's where we sort of saw that the big uh, teams of McLaren and Ferrari make a huge step down the, down the field because they couldn't get online with this new way of thinking, effectively. Um, so, 
just going back to the the original point about the 2019 wings obviously what we're going to see is that there's going to be far less outwash with these new front wings or that's the intention of the new regulation changes i'm not saying that there still won't be outwash because teams always find a way but it should be much less than it currently is it's what goes on then behind that structure that we have to think about and what the teams are going to do with the barge boards and the leading edge of the floor, the sides of the floor, etc. So 2019 for me is going to be very interesting. Yes, I'm going to lose a, a lot of potential in terms of my writing for about front wings because mm. there's going to be a lot less flicks on there. But obviously the, there's still going to be a huge amount of development on the cars. Okay, and uh, we're going to move on. Um, we have seen um, uh, a move to simplify the tire nominations for next year. Instead of having a rainbow of tires, just simply bring the three and call them soft, medium, and hard, or prime option and qualifying, or uh, who knows what who knows what the clever people at Liberty will dream up. Uh, but uh, someone had asked about the wets and the inners and whether or not they had to stay the same compound all season or whether... Uh, much like we saw some adjustments for the resurface tracks, whether Pirelli does change up the compounds from time to time. Okay, so they ordinarily would stay the same throughout the season, um, just primarily because they have a lot a lot less time to be able to test the wet tyres as well. So, you know, they're, 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 they're not working on them so much. Um, there is talk, though, of them having specific um, compounds for different circuits, and for for the future rate for 2019 for argument's sake so at the moment i foresee that we'll stick with what we've got in terms of 2019 it'll still be the same intermediate and wet compounds and there'll be no changes Um, but i do think that for the next tire tender which is quite an interesting topic um, we could see some movement in that respect Okay, um, DB from the Slack group, and if you're wondering how to join the Slack group, please do just hit us up on Patreon. Even the minimum amount gets you in, and you can dive right into the madness. Wants to know how a team would try to find a compromise on a single set of gear ratios while aggressively developing their engines. Would you compromise your early season phase knowing you had a big development? Uh, or And do we know the specifics of what exactly happened with the gear ratios and McLaren and uh, the great gear ratio controversy of 2018? Okay, so plenty of questions wrapped up into one there. Um, in terms of the problem that McLaren have had this season, I don't know the complete specifics of it. But effectively, what we have to remember is, is that the move manufacturers have moved from Honda where they're used to a certain specific set of ratios for that that particular power unit, where, remember, they were supposedly underpowered, versus the Renault power unit, which they've obviously had the specifications ahead of time from Renault, and they've changed their gear ratios according to what they understood would be the requirement for the Renault power unit. Now, unfortunately, what I've talked about in the past is, is that perhaps uh, McLaren weren't getting the best from their chassis in terms of in reference to the power unit because they couldn't get the amount of power that they thought they would get they could get they weren't you know the, the reference didn't line up with the the aerodynamic side of things yeah and so, uh, and so i think that's where they've had a primarily a, a big problem this year we know that that car is excessively draggy and you know they've even said that they may turn up in russia with something that is monza specification let's say in terms of trying to take some drag off the car now i what I question is, why has it taken this, them this long in the season to fundamentally understand those issues and try to get on top of them? Um, 
if we look at their rear wing design, which has now been copied by Mercedes, Renault and Ferrari, those teams only run it in the very high downforce circuits. Yet McLaren have been running that design for a year and a half. So if that is extremely draggy, which would be tended to be the, the idea from the other teams that are only running at a high downforce circuits, why have McLaren persisted with such a design? And that is where I can't wrap my head around things at McLaren. It seems that fundamentally they've got some clash of ideas in terms of who's doing what and what department takes priority, let's say. So hopefully going forward and into 2019, we might see that kind of start to line up. Right. Well, and they have a new person in their corner to sort of help, I think, establish a proper flow of information and decision making, which is really what it sounds like. And if the gear ratio was that important, I'm just going to ask this just out of sheer ignorance. Why not just take a penalty and put in something that can at least extract all the power from the engine? We have a bit of an issue there, Matt, because there's no there's no precedent here because they took away the joker option right. that was available in 2014 and 2016 in terms of being able to change your gear, nominated gear ratio for the year. And it doesn't actually say in the sporting or technical regulations what would happen if you wanted to change your gear ratios in a season. So, again, <laughs> perhaps another issue where they, they've spoken to the FIA and the FIA have scratched their head for a, a little while and said, well, we don't know what, what we'll do in terms of penalties here. Perhaps they'd get a 20-place grid penalty to every race. You know, I, I don't know. And that's partly perhaps the problem behind this scenario. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Okay, let's move on. John Langmaid uh, says in an email that Mercedes tells they've worked hard to understand and improve their car speed out of slow corners, which we have already talked about on the show. Um, do you know what they've found and how they've solved it? So we've talked about the temperature in the rears, but is there other stuff going on under the hood there? Yeah, I mean, I would still, still suggest that obviously, although they've made these exposed visual changes that we've already mentioned in terms of the rear brake drums and the rear wheel design, then you also have to remember that there's so much more that can go on in terms of managing the ERS system, managing throttle response, all things that, although the driver has ultimate control over, they are still programmable elements. So they, they can be engineered to work better in low-speed scenarios. So I think there is part of that where the team have kind of engineered this, engineered themselves out of a corner um, in that respect. And, uh-huh. yeah, I do think uh-huh. that that's, that's, yes, pun intended. <laughs> okay andy whitney from twitter would like to know if teams could source durable tires and be forced to make x pit stops per race regardless for the show um would following in in dirty air be possible um so off you go okay so more durable tires tends to air on the side of a different construction in terms of the tyre construction itself. Now, this is something that's interesting for the 2021 regulations and the way that they're looking to be shaped up in terms of changing to an 18-inch wheel uh, with a with a smaller sidewall. So what we would have there would be far less deformation in the side of the sidewall, which would mean that you would get far less air wake from, from the wheel itself in terms of you know the, the moving around of the tyre, let's say, versus the the wheel rim so yes there is a plausibility to changing to a harder compound 
uh, different construction, etc., in terms of the tire, in terms of improving the overall lap time. But the problem that you've got, and I think people tend to forget about this, is that the sport has been used to engineering around the problem of doing pit stops. They don't want to do pit stops. They will do as few as they possibly can because you can have errors in pit stops, you lose time, you get yourself into traffic. So they will always go slower if it means going faster overall. And and that's the problem that Formula One has in terms of being able to control the way in which the show develops over the course of a race. Yeah, and if I could just toss in there, would I be wrong in assuming that tires aren't the only problem when it comes to dirty air? I mean, we we have seen uh, collisions happen, and 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 the result as a result of one car getting in front of another one. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, Verstappen and Ricciardo and Baku here, where the moment that downforce comes off the car because the other car gets in front of it, then the entire car drives differently. Correct, because you, you, although you're removing the arrow from the front wing, that then effectively dials out the, the performance from the whole car. So you've lost global downforce. And in fact, Ross Braun recently suggested that they lose 50% of the downforce on the trailing car when in turbulent airflow. So you, you're effectively losing half of your aerodynamic performance whilst you're trailing another car, which is a monumental amount of, of downforce to lose, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, uh, Jay Tanguis says, is McLaren running an S-duct? And he had looked carefully at pictures and was unable to ascertain whether that was the case. And and I would just like to know, is there anyone not running them? I mean, is this is an S-duct just a standard thing on every car now? Uh, McLaren don't run an S-duct, and they haven't all season. They should be running an S-duct by now because the the car was kind of designed to have one. Um, again they went through this stage where they introduced this new very complicated nose at the front end of the car with the side panel fairings and the cape underneath and let's just copy lots of different designs and hopefully something will work and add us 20 points of downforce scenario Um, so that shovel nose, as I like to call it, I think was intended to work with an S-duct, but the, the development has never really come on board. Um, we see sort of the uh, inlets availability on the side and underneath the nose, but there's no outlet on the top of the nose. So for those that don't know what an S-duct is, you take airflow from underneath the nose and you channel it through the nose to the, the top surface, just where it transitions to the chassis. And you blow that airflow across the top of the nose to try to keep the airflow attached to it rather than it becoming a detached and messy transitional area. So they're the only ones that don't run an S-duct this season from memory. I can't think of anybody else not running an S-duct. Um, but it, again, it's just an aero pre- preference and it's because of the rules and the reason that's the reason why we see them because of the transition between the nose and the chassis. It's just one of those where it's become on vogue to have one. All right, then. And finally, Felix in the Slack group would like to know, and you knew this question was coming, why have Ferrari redesigned their airbox cooling mechanism to still block that camera? Are, are they just tweaking the nose of of the FIA at this point? Like, okay, we will follow what you said to the letter, but you're still not going to get what you want. Or, or is there some? Is there a real reason for it that you're aware of? They're just punking us at this stage, aren't they? 
that's all it is ferrari have just decided we are just going to do this just because everybody keeps talking about it um in reality the, the my understanding is is that they had a problem with people being able to see the car inside the garage and look at the power unit from behind from the rear facing camera now most of what has been talked about is the front facing camera looking down into the cockpit and what's going on with the controls on the steering wheel etc because we had that issue where everybody was saying that people that Vettel and Raikkonen were using those sort of areas in the thumb area on the steering wheel to control some hidden button that was underneath the the uh the silicon um but in reality, that I can't see what Ferrari are trying to hide. You know, every team is trying to hide something. Um, that it's just misdirection, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think it's a case of Ferrari basically saying, "Well, you've told us not to do it, and we're just going to carry on doing it, but in a different way, just because." All right, then let's move on, and let's talk about possibly the most fun thing we could talk about, which is the brand new 2021 concept, which has been introduced, you know, by the FIA. Anyway, we've seen some pictures, so let's do talk about them. And I'm just going to go with, is it just me? Or were these basically dug out of a drawer somewhere? Because they came with the old FIA logo on them. I mean, at least certainly the, the first two, maybe not the third one. Uh, and is the third one like, is this just like, we want to give you two things that look not so good so that you will like the thing that we want you to like? Is this kind of what it is? And and finally, um, before I get to the listener question, it looks like we're kind of borrowing from IndyCar a little bit here. And are we borrowing too much? Is that a concern? And along those lines, um, uh, Blackout19 from the Slack group wants to know, if you think a more radical shift to ground effects would be better for Formula One than making it look like something out of Gran Turismo. Okay. So firstly, the 2021 car that came out was a, a bit of a mistake because Ross Braun showed a picture at uh, one of his tech talks in Singapore. And uh, immediately as he did that, he realized that everybody was getting their camera out of their pocket and taking <laughs> pictures of the screen and that's how it got out and i think primarily one of the biggest reasons it got out is because people like myself found said picture and put it on their twitter feed and instagram feed and then everybody saw that said oh. um concept oh, those um, old. To, to, to which liberty were apparently not very happy because they they you know they had then had the cat out the bag and had to try to um recover the situation they hastily then the a few days later released all three concept images as you mentioned two of which as you say had the old f1 logo the flying f on there um and one with the the new logo which strangely oddly they showed a picture of a oval circuit going in the wrong direction so i don't know who was in charge of doing that uh piece of um information but they certainly got a few things wrong um but going on to what are we doing with 2021 i think fundamentally there's some key things to talk about with that particular design one of which i've already mentioned which is the increasing uh wheel diameter from right. 13 inch to 18 inch and obviously the response that would have in terms of the um wake that we see as a problem right now You've also got to think about then that that has an impact on the suspension elements of the car. Well, yeah. 
because obviously you're not getting the the deflection from from the, the sidewall itself. Yeah. There there has been talk that there may be a shift towards a specification um, active suspension for 2021, which is interesting, but it's been mooted for a very long time. So I'm not getting too excited about that at this stage. But I think looking at the overall design, I think you can effectively take designs to one and two and cast them aside because I don't think they're actually very representative of what the, the sport is heading towards. I think number three is more representative of where we currently are in terms of understanding the regulations that are going to be put forward for 2021. And unfortunately for me, what I see is that they're kind of taking a very aesthetic approach to things. You know, the 2017 regulations went in that direction and we suddenly got a, a very different approach from some of the teams who basically said, well, we don't want to design that way. So we're going to work around those boxes that you've put in our way. Ferrari with their side pod solution for argument's sake. So, you know, they'll have to be very careful about the way in which they word these new regulations in order that they don't get some very different unintended consequences as we've seen uh, Formula One teams create in the past. Um, but I, I'm not getting too d- downhearted about the whole scenario at the moment. I do think that it's a, a, a certain move in, a, in the right direction. Whether this is something that is going to look anything like that concept when we get there is to be debated at this stage because, as we know, what you intend a concept to look like in terms of road manufacturers, for argument's sake, when they actually come out as cars, look very different to that because you have to then think about the physicality of how those things actually work in the real world. Because for me, the one thing that stood out was that the halo on this new concept was an extremely elongated version of what we already have. Now, the first concept of the halo looked very much like that and Obviously, the crash testing proved that it couldn't look like that. So, you know, it, it's nice to see these concepts, but I don't think they'll have a huge bearing on what we see going forward. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the championship a little bit more. Um, and my question to you is, is Singapore, is this in terms of the engineering and technical battle, is this the turning point? Have Have, have Mercedes decisively seize the advantage from Ferrari? Because, I mean, up until now, the consensus has basically been Ferrari overall had the more pliable, better car, and and Mercedes has been chasing uh, not a huge gap, but a small gap all season long. And particularly at the beginning of the year, this was, this was pretty apparent if you just bothered to look at the times a little bit. Uh, but have we, have Mercedes finally put themselves ahead of Ferrari with this? I, I think that's kind of interesting take on things because to me i've never seen ferrari actually that far ahead of ferrari, ahead of mercedes to suggest they are the lead team i think it's yo-yoed backwards and forwards quite okay. a lot in the, the opening phase of the season and i would still sit on the fence and say that mercedes were actually technically still had the better car and ferrari was still chasing and that is where we kind of line up in terms of the development race as well, because Ferrari have chucked a huge amount of resource at this year's car, whereas Mercedes have been a bit more held back in their their quest for more performance. In fact, most of their performance, I think, has been found by actually understanding where they're going wrong. And that's especially where we've seen at the street circuits, because it's been, you know, their their problem area. Um, Now, that gives them an extra 
trick up their sleeve going into the end of the season because now if they do understand those problems that they've had in the past and they can reference that to the circuits that they're going to go to in the future i do see that mercedes might have a bit of an advantage over ferrari in terms of the the latter part of the season however there is one other area of of problem for mercedes in as much as that if i were ferrari i would not be thinking of 2019 yes it would be you know i'd I'd be obviously building my car but a lot of my resource would be on building to the end of this season because I would want to throw the kitchen sink at winning this championship because they haven't won a championship for over a decade and they need to get something on the board just to try to destabilise Mercedes as they already have this season. Getting the championship would be a massive, massive um, achievement for Ferrari, I think, going into the end of this season. Yes, and sad for me, I haven't gone and looked at the numbers, but I would guess they'd have to look more towards the Constructors' Champions than the Drivers' Championship, barring unreliability or an accident, which it is racing. These things do happen. So that kind of answered my question of who you think might blink first. You said Ferrari shouldn't blink first, but realistically, are they going to blink first and chuck it in the development while Mercedes carries on to the bitter end? Yeah, and that, you know, this is the story of this season, but also the story of next season. We're, we're seeing a, a battle that's going to not only drive the end of this championship, but also the start of next year's championship as well. And that is problematic for Ferrari because they're going to be losing Raikkonen and, and bringing on a new driver. So, yeah, for me personally, I would would have chucked more resource at the end of this season to try to build momentum for next year. Um, especially as you know, they, they they've never really concentrated on the on the constructors championship in the past. It's always really primarily for Ferrari being about getting the drivers championship. And I think this year they could really stick it to Mercedes in terms of taking the the Mercedes. Um, that you know, Mercedes really like to to win the constructors championship. Yeah. So if you can take that title from them, it may be a destabilizing factor going forward. Okay, and so let's get practical about it then. In terms of the rest of the season, does either team, Ferrari or Mercedes, have any kind of advantage in terms of uh, power unit mileage, uh, power unit availability, or or the other components? Is someone down to no turbochargers left or only one H versus two somewhere else? I think they only get two H's this year anyway, but you get my point. Is there a material advantage either direction? Okay, so there's two Ks per season and two energy stores per season and everything else, uh, sorry, and two control electronics every season and then there's three of everything else. Okay. Uh, um, I don't believe there's a massive difference in terms of uh, allocation availability for, for either team. Ferrari just did actually take some of their parts ahead of Mercedes, so they potentially have more mileage on the, the secondary parts, but they may still be able to go back to old specification um, for free practice runs, etc., and, and, and obviously use the, the mileage up on those components. So, yeah, it's I don't think there's much between them in that respect, unfortunately. Oh, well, not unfortunately. The closer it is, the more exciting it is. So this is actually great news for everybody who's a fan. All right, um... Let's talk about any other business. I've seen reports, um, an auto, motor, und sport, for those of you playing bingo at home, that they might be adding an extra session next year to get down to the top eight. And it's been mooted that this is primarily to help the midfield team with the tires. A lot of them complained about having to start on the qualifying tire. 
not as much of a problem for the top teams because, of course, they have a stupidly ridiculous amount of pace in hand by comparison. Have you heard anything about this? Uh, and what do you think of it? I haven't heard, aside from that. this article, yeah. a, a, about it. Um, I don't have a problem with it. I think some change in margin, small margins, is fine. And if it helps the midfield teams to have better race pace, which is fundamentally where they have an issue, then I don't have a problem with it at all. Um, I I do have an issue, as we've discussed in the past, in the way in which the the tyres are proportioned off in any way. Um, it it kind of creates a problem for the midfield teams um, in the respect of being able to maintain pace with the lead cars. And at certain circuits, we've already seen that, you know, the lead cars are lapping up to the the, the front of the midfield. So we need to try to to stop that from happening um, by reducing that performance gap and doing this kind of qualifying might help in that respect. Okay, but I will just pose the question then. Uh, why not just limit the Q2 tire selection to the top six teams and say that you're required to use your qualifying tire and give everybody P7 down free choice? It seems like that's just as easy a change. Um, maybe it's got to do with traffic at circuits or I don't know. But anyway, I'll chuck that out there. And you mentioned 18-inch tires, and we've had confirmation now from the FIA that there are indeed two interested vendors for the upcoming tire tender. Uh, One of them, of course, is Pirelli that we all know and perhaps we love. And the other one is Hankook, which is a bit of an unknown. So do you have any technical insight for us there? Not so much in that um, what EVA will supply, but the interesting part of this discussion is the interim year, because the current um, deal runs out at the end of 2019. And that means that 2020 has to have a 13-inch wheel, according to the regulation, unless, of course, an agreement can be struck between every party. Now, that is problematic for Hankook that wants to come in because they're effectively going to have to design a 13-inch tyre for one season. Now, where have we seen that before? Pirelli had a a similar problem when they first came into the sport, if I remember rightly, in terms of um, the, the changeover from the Bridgestone era. So, yeah, it, I cannot for the life of me understand who signed off on the contract that split the two differences between the end of one regulation set and another uh, and allowed then for, for a manufacturer such as Pirelli to effectively have an advantage over anybody else coming in that wanted to tender because we've effectively stopped Michelin uh, applying for, for tender as well in that respect. Yeah, but that according to Michelin, that was not their only complaint about the tender. They don't like the degrading nature of the tires in general um, because they, they prefer to design them for a maximum tire and then let what happens, happens. But I, I'd say that Hankook also is not as disadvantaged because they already make tires that size for Formula 3 as well so it's not they're not they're not going to have to start from the same kind of scratch that michelin would were they to have um tried to get in on this no but we're talking about two very different cars Uh, what does an f3 car produce in terms of downforce and power they are very very different animals and we could end up it would be very exciting but we could end up with a 13 inch tire from hancock that falls apart after 10 laps for argument's oh, sake which yes. actually falls in line with the fia's tender 
process. So, you know, perhaps perhaps it'll be a winner after all. Ah, well, we can only uh, but cross our fingers and hope. Uh, so, Summers, tell us, where can we find you? The Probably the best place to find me, Matt, is on Twitter, which is SummersF1. You can um, obviously go to my blog, which is summersf1.co.uk, and you can catch some of my work over on motorsport.com as well. Excellent. And I am, of course, at MattPT55, also on the Twitters. And remember, chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Tech Time, a Missed Apex podcast production. that'll do pretty well for a show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.